This Christmas season, I, uh, I want to begin our Christmas series or our Advent season by, rather than just looking at the Nativity or the birth of Christ, I want to invite you along with me to look at a behind-the-scenes look at what was taking place when Christ became the incarnate Son of Man on earth. Now, I personally have never been to a concert, and I don't really feel that I'm missing anything. For some reason, loud noises just don't seem to really get me as excited as they do Michelle. Michelle loves concerts. If I were to go to a concert, though, um, I, would, I would opt for the behind-the-scene tickets. I, I would want to be backstage where I have elbow room to move and people were not around me and uh, probably have the better experience of the two. And those of you that have ever been to a concert or even been privileged enough to have a behind-the-scenes look at things would know that behind-the-scenes is where the magic happens and sometimes where the magic is even disillusioned. What's interesting, though, when we turn to the Gospels is that Christ himself has a behind-the-scenes look at what happened on Christmas night, on the Advent, the season that we're looking forward to, and the things that we are celebrating. What was taking place where mortal eyes cannot see? These things aren't magic. It's not a production. It's not some sort of symphony, but it's a wonderful, wonderful declaration of who Christ is. And for that reason, I'll invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of John. We'll be spending our time this morning with the first three verses of John's opening prologue and what he says about Christ. Now, those of you that have been coming on Wednesday evenings and enjoying our (laughs) discipleship lessons through the life of Christ will remember that the Gospel of John is unique not just because it's not a synoptic, but because it begins where no other gospel writer chooses to begin. Most biblical historians have settled on John being the last of the gospels to be written, which means more than likely the author was writing after he had already read the synoptic versions and accounts of Jesus' life. Still, he decides to leave things out in his gospel account. He says even in John 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He goes on and he says, I want you to know that these things that are written down are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Listen to me this morning. As we begin to look at the Gospel of John, it is important that we have in the forefront of our minds what the author's original intent is. We do not find in any of the Gospel accounts a perfect, homogeneous biography of the person of Christ's life. These authors are writing with a purpose. They want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Everything that they have recorded, everything that has been written for their original audience was pointing towards developing a sense not only of faith, but belief that these things that are written about Christ are true. True. What is true matters. Truth can be disputed. People can argue over whether something's absolutely true or relatively true. But listen, loved ones, truth matters. 
The Bible is our only absolute authority of truth. Where does John begin in his gospel account? But in establishing that there is a truth that goes beyond what we are capable of perceiving on our own. Understand the context, the situation, the circumstances that John is writing in, sometime between 80 or 90 A.D. The church, if you know anything about church history, know this. When it was established, after Christ ascended to heaven, experienced tremendous persecution. Christians were being attacked. Christians were being martyred. People were mocking Christians, asking questions more than likely something along the lines of, if Christ really is the Messiah, why is it that not many Jews followed Him? Why is it that His own people rejected Him? We talk about the persecution and the struggles of the church today. Loved ones, we cannot possibly imagine the suffering that the church was experiencing in the first century. The things that we are concerned with are really rather trivial in the face of contending for truth. With that said, by way of introduction, let's prepare to read from God's Word. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that as we read your word, you would open our eyes to the amazing truth that is found in you. Lord, I pray that we would remember the promise that you've given us in your word, the testimony of your word unto itself, that it is not just a written book recorded and dead, but that it is alive and that it is speaking to us. While we might not know your word, God, your word knows us. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal to us who we are, that we might have a better relationship with you, a better relationship with each other, and a better relationship with the world that we are called to. God, I pray that you would guide us in all understanding and in all truth this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Word of God says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All the gospel writers begin in different places. Matthew and Luke both begin with some sort of a genealogy about the life of Christ. Luke begins kind of beforehand with the ministry and the work of John the Baptist and the unique circumstances that the forerunner for Christ was born. Matthew begins with the birth of Christ. Mark begins, he jumps right in. Jesus is about 30 years old and launching his public ministry, and that's where he decides to begin. John goes back farther than any other gospel writer. As we were studying this on Wednesday nights, I asked the question, if you were giving an account of who Jesus is, where would you begin? And we found all of the answers that the gospel writers chose with his ministry, with his birth, maybe a little bit before his birth so we understand what's happening beforehand. And some even said, in the beginning. If I asked you to turn chronologically, to the first words of Scripture. It would be right here in John chapter 1. 
We think that the beginning starts in Genesis chapter 1, but the first words of the Bible in chronological order, that is in sequence of events, are in John chapter 1. You'll remember Genesis chapter 1 begins, In the beginning God created. Before God created, God was. In the beginning was the Word. In Greek, the word here is in arche. And in other words, we could even go as far to say that this isn't just in the beginning, but this is in arche, which means before time even existed. No matter how far back we go, how, no matter how far we are capable of conceiving time beginning, in the beginning, God was there. I joke oftentimes about how I think that I'm smart. The truth is, that's a farce. I have a decent vocabulary, but I am not a very smart man. Many of you are smarter than I am. Some of you are engineers and have experience with physics and things like this, and you have some sort of concept of time that just makes my brain hurt. And the truth is, I don't have to think very hard about the beginnings of time for my brain to begin to hurt. I can tell you this with confidence, though. No matter the models we hold of understanding how time begins, before that, you will find Jesus there. Athanasius, the early Christian historian, said, there never was when he was not. That's a profound statement. There never was when he was not. Drawing on parallels immediately to Genesis chapter 1, Paul, John craftily employs his use of language to say, in the beginning, before the beginning, before time, was the Word. And this wonderful Word is the focus of the Christmas season. This wonderful Word is the focus not only of the Christmas season, but of the Christian faith. This wonderful Word is the focus of everything that we cling on to as we pursue the Advent and what is taking place behind the scenes in God's wonderful revelation before us. In theology, we express Christ not only as the crowning work of achievement, but as the crowning work of God's revelation to us. We look through time and we peer into history and we see what God has been doing from all beginning, revealing Himself to us in His design that all of creation would declare the glory of God and that through history He would intervene, that He would choose an appointed man, that He would covenant with Abraham, with the people of Israel, that through these people He would persevere, that He would provide for Himself, that He would providentially establish the nation of Israel, that they would enter the promised land that they would rebel against Him, but despite their adulterous and idolatrous worship of other gods, that God would be faithful to His covenant promises to them. When the people rebelled against God in such a way, losing sight of what they were to do to worship, when they asked God to give us a king, God gave them a king. And He found in David a man who wanted God's Love, who wanted to please God, who desired and, and pursued God's own heart. And he covenanted with David that his kingdom would be established forever. Through his lineage would come none other than Jesus Christ himself. And his kingdom does reign forever and always. 
It always has rained. It always will rain. It is presently raining. Christ's kingdom in the beginning was the Word. Paul introduces us to the word here using the Greek word logos, which is something kind of interesting about Paul's or John's writing in the way that he decides to approach this in describing who Christ is. We would note that in Genesis, God creates with the spoken word. He speaks and it is created. Word, then, for us would be the understanding that as our words express who we are, our ideas, our emotions, our personality, it is so true with the Son of God. He is the Word, which is the expression of all things in the Trinity. While not separable by essence, He is distinct in person. What we find in the introduction of John's gospel is that in the beginning, if you want to know the Father, if you want to understand the Spirit, it is the Word. It is the expression. It is the manifest Christ that we must come to know. In the beginning, God was the Word. Christ was there. He is the expression of all things. Psalm 33 tells us, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made their starry host by the breath of His mouth. The child in the manger at Bethlehem is none other than the Son of God incarnate. That means in the flesh. He took on flesh. Think about this. The Christian claim that most of us together here this morning, or maybe even all of us, profess is that the child in the manger, the infant of Mary, the outcast, the stranger, is none other than the Lord of eternity. That there was not whenever when he was not. If you really are staying up at night, maybe you're struggling with insomnia because the time change has wrecked everybody's schedule and everything else. Think about this as you're laying in bed. I promise it'll put you right to sleep. The infant that's laid in the manger was Lord of eternity. He was born in a moment, but he was Lord over everything from the beginning of time before there was a time, after there will be a time. He will continue to reign. In the manger scene, the one who shepherds came to worship is the one who put the star in the sky that would lead the wise men from the Orient there. He's the one who held all things together. I ask you, Because I think about this this time of year as I experience truly my most favorite season of the entire year. How is it possible that somebody could reject the truth revealed in the heavens? How is it that my friends, that my neighbors, that my family can dispense with Christianity so easily? How is it that your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones, your co-workers, how is it that they can reject the truth of the Bible? How is it possible that truth can be disputed? What I find as I reflect on this this year is that it is not because people have considered 
Christianity or considered the veracity or the truthfulness of what the Bible says and found it wanting and decided they could reject it. They didn't search the scriptures and find it untrue. What they found instead is that they've simply decided to regard the Christian faith as something trivial. Trivial! It means unimportant, unsignificant, unimpacting, minute. It's a trifle. Consider that. The reason people are able to reject Christianity is not because they have searched it and found it untrue. It's because they have found it to be trivial. Imagine decorating a cake for your holiday season, for gathering with your family and preparing a wonderful dessert. And on this dessert, this wonderful cake that you're designing, you're making trifles of chocolate shavings and you're shaving the chocolates and you're placing them delicately in the perfect place on the cake. And one of them falls out. What do you do? You pick it up and eat it and you move on. It doesn't matter. It was a trifle of a matter. As I was putting up Christmas lights and I was sitting on my roof, afraid for my life, hanging over the edge and clipping these little things on, one of the clips fell off and I had already scooted beyond it. Did I scoot back down and fix it? No, I was ready to get off the roof. I left it and I moved on. If you drive by my house, you'll look at the, 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 the little thing where the shingle is and all the lights are pointing in the same direction except one. And if anyone says anything about it, I'll say, what a trivial thing to be concerned with. Your eternity is not a trivial thing. It's replacing the flour in your cake with plaster. Your relationship with the Lord God Most High is not a chocolate shaving. This is the most important thing in all of the world. It's not unnegotiably unimpactful on your work life. It's completely transformative to everything that we are. It's not an individual pursuit in your marriage. It is the cornerstone holding you together in covenant promises to your spouse. People have not rejected the truth of Scripture because they have searched it and found it untrue. They've simply decided it's trivial. Why? How is it so that people could simply decide that the fact that God existed outside of time, how is it possible that they could decide that this is a trivial matter, that this is insignificant, that it's something to trifle with, perhaps if we have time, but maybe not something to be preoccupied with, not something to be dedicated to? It's because believers... The people who profess Christ have spent more time in recent days bending over backwards to accommodate those with lacking faith. What do I mean by that? Well, 
Do you really believe that when God created man that it was complete in his creation? I do. You don't really believe a fish followed up a prophet who is running away from God's directions. Yeah, I do. You don't really believe that three men went into a fiery furnace and lived. Yes, I do. You don't really believe that a fiery chariot descended out of heaven and grabbed up one of God's greatest prophets and descended with him. Yes, I do. You don't really believe that in an infant born in a stable was God, Creator, Lord, Almighty, Alpha, and Omega. Yes, I do. Christians spend more time bending over backwards over that which is difficult to grasp. You don't really believe that a gracious God could potentially subject someone to the justice they deserve. Yes, I do. You don't really believe that the only way to heaven is Jesus Christ. Yes, I do. There is no other way but him. When we spend time bending over backwards over things that are difficult, what we do is we say to the world that would have a lacking faith that would and should be pushed to read the Bible for themselves, what we say to them is this is simply a trivial matter because I can decide the things which I say are true and those at which I reject. We cannot bend over backwards. It is in the hard things that we find in Scripture where we find the greatest nuggets of truth, the greatest blessings, the greatest insights into knowing who it is that we worship and why it is that we call Him who instead of it. Because He's personal. Word goes on. But first, let me just challenge you. If you have ever struggled with your faith, whatever season of life you're going through, if you've ever questioned it, I would simply ask you to do this. Don't come and talk to me. Don't try to make me convince you. Go home and read a gospel. I believe that the Word of God has enough power in it because it is alive to convict somebody of the truthfulness of it. Rather than considering this as something trivial, spend time, commit, find it untrue if you will, but I believe that if you read the Bible and you ask God to show you the truth that is in it, you will find the belief and the faith that you need. by the breath of his mouth, by the word, the heavens were created. The choice of describing word for Christ is something that uniquely describes Jesus as the expression of the Trinity, the ultimate revelation of who God is to humanity. The word was with God. There's an interesting turn of phrase that John uses here. First he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I read that, and the truth is, English lets us down quite a bit here. How can something be with God and at the same time God? (coughs) Fortunately, I am a nerd. 
and the Greek gives us a significant amount of insights. John actually changes the tense in the way that he is describing being with God and being God. And, and it's remarkable the way that John does this, and it doesn't come through in the English, but, but here's the easiest way that I think I can try to explain it, and I haven't put a lot of time in trying to make it easy, so maybe it's not all that easy, but stick with me, hear me out, and I promise we'll get through it together. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The tense of the verb was, the past tense of the verb to be, or I'm losing you all, let me try again. The tense of the verb was is imperfect. That means that it's always happening. There's not an absolute time in which it was happening, but that it is imperfect. It's been happening, it's currently happening, and it's going to continue to happen. So even though we read it in English in the past tense, it's always happening. Look at what John says whenever he says that the word became flesh. Now here's the difference. That's not the imperfect tense. Instead, that is the... Oh, I can't remember the word for it. doesn't matter. You guys won't know it anyway. It happened in a particular point in time. It's punctiliar. That's what it is. It's in the punctiliar tense. It happened in a moment. So here we have the contrast. In the beginning was, imperfectly, always was, continues to be, and then the word became flesh, became punctiliar. In a moment, this happened. We find that in Jesus Christ, not only is there the expression of everything that exists in the God hand through the perfect revelation of God to humanity, but we also find that he was with God. He's preexisted in the word, distinct from the spirit and the father, not in essence, but is who he is in person. Thomas Whitelaw said the theme of the evangelist discourse was not a metaphysical abstraction or a poetical personification, but a veritable person. That's a mouthful, isn't it? That's a good way to start your Sunday morning. Let's break it down because this is wonderful. It's not just a metaphysical abstraction. God is not giving us the expression of John's gospel so that we might have a concept or an idea. It's not a poetical personification. It's not just a dressed up mythology. Here it is. It's a veritable person. That means... A real guy. Jesus is a real guy. Man, I'd love this. John is interested in into introducing us to the person of Christ because we have a personal God and a relationship with him. This is the answer to all of the eternal questions of life. John is, and when we read this, here's the question that we must ask. John is either telling us the truth or he's telling us a lie. If he's telling us the truth, what he's telling us cannot be rejected. If he's telling us a lie, listen, John was a very, very bad guy. 
He led many of us astray. He was manipulative. If he's telling us the truth, we must believe everything that he's telling us. And consider, remember I told you the context or the circumstances that John's writing in. The church is being persecuted. They're suffering. People are telling them all of these things. Why wasn't it the Jews that come? And it seems that John would even address these matters up front. Verse 10, he was the word and the word was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. John's focus in this entire gospel account is the person of Christ. And we see that in what makes humanity distinct. What makes us a person. That we have relationships. That we can maintain relationships. As we look at this being true, we could flip through the chapters to Christ at the wedding at Cana. To Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, oh, why, he was an awfully good guy. Why did Jesus jump right in with that being born again stuff? That's the worst part about Christians, isn't it? When they jump to the, you got to be born again. Why did he jump right there? Nicodemus was educated. He was philosophical. He loved the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He studied the Lord. And Jesus said, to know me, you must be born again. What is it with Jesus and this woman at the well in chapter 5? Or this laborer, or the Samaritan who had servants that he wanted to kill? The 5,000 that he fed? Jesus is relational. Why is it that God would sacrifice all the glories of heaven? Think about this. We have an image of Christ in our head, and especially this time of year we see it. I don't know what your image is. Perhaps it's a, a beautifully adorned boy with blonde hair and blue eyes. Maybe he's Arabian. I don't know what it is. The truth is, all of our mental images of Christ are rather unuseful, aren't they? They don't help us in worshiping him, and in fact, none of them are biblical. There's not one physical description of Jesus of Nazareth in any four of the Gospels. We do, however, have this. We have this description of Christ. Not as he was when he was on earth, but as he is in heaven. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This Christmas season, as I look behind the scenes, it is not Jesus in a manger that I worship. It's Jesus in a manger that I praise. But it is the God of eternity that I owe my heart to. This Advent season, as I consider the hope of the Christian joy, it is not the hope that I place in the events that have happened in a punctiliar sense in the past, but it is in the punctiliar expectant sense that I hope for Christ to return tomorrow. Hair white like snow. Eyes blazing like a fire. Feet like burnished bronze. I look forward not just to the Advent that we celebrate in our tradition and in our holidays, but I am reminded to celebrate the Advent that comes tomorrow. Christ has a relationship not just with God and his relationship with the Trinity, but it was in the beginning that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things are held together by him. All things are in him. God is in everything around us. 
holding them together, creating them, designing them. He created you and he created me. He came to his own. Think about the rejection of Christ in his ministry. It was not just his own people. It was not just the Jews that rejected him. He came to mountains that he formed. Cities that he providentially provided for. Trees that he knitted together. He spoke with people that he knitted together in their mother's womb. He was speaking to his creation. All matter, all substance belonging to him because he exists beyond it. And his own did not know him. To reject Christ is to reject that which is Everything that you are. I'm speaking to Christians this morning. So maybe that doesn't strike the same chord with you as it would who some, as somebody who lives in disbelief. But know this. We reject Christ when we neglect to worship with everything that we are. To say that one final point will be dismissed. In verse 2, when John writes, he was in the beginning with God, the phrase that we would be looking at here could also be translated, and I think this is actually more accurate. He was towards God. God the Father was turned towards God the Son. God the Son was turned towards God the Father. They were face to face. They were sharing glory with one another. They were with one another. This is the exchange that takes place behind the scenes. The Son comes to earth to be rejected by that which He created. No longer towards God. To live a human life, to experience every persecution, every ounce of suffering, to experience temptation like you and I that he could identify with you and I. He was no longer towards the Father. I think about my own son, and we've developed some bad habits in the past week. Bubba wakes up around 2 o'clock in the morning and he screams, a blood-curdling screech that echoes off of the hardwood floors down the hallway and through the living room and wakes Michelle up and not me. And in response, Michelle goes and gets our beloved son and he climbs into bed, always on my side. My spine has certainly been dislocated from this past week. My shoulders hurt because I have a 83-pound 2-year-old that lays right here. And I look forward to 2 o'clock in the morning because that little boy takes his, his little nugget nose and he puts it right up on my face and he kisses me and he says, a night-night, Papa. I open my eyes and I look at him and he says, close your eyes, Papa. 
I say, okay, but you close your eyes too. And he hits the deck just like that. He lays on his side and he puts his face towards me. He's back in the nursery right now and I wonder if he looks forward to putting his face towards me again. Certainly this was the cry of the son as he prepared in Gethsemane, as he prepared to ascend to the cross, as he prepared to be face to face with the Father again, to be in glory, enshrined in all of the glory of heaven, that he came to earth to fulfill something in particular and that it was accomplished. My cry this morning as a part of creation, as a part of what was created through him, is this. that I would be towards him. That I would look forward to the day that I do not sit worshiping a concept or an idea or an understanding or the words, but that I could turn my face towards him in a physical sense and know him and know his love and know his expression and whisper small little utterances that he would translate, that he would know that he would be enshrined in all glory. This Christmas season, we do not worship anything other than he that deserves all worship. We look forward not just to celebrating the past Advent, but enjoying the one to come.